Hey, Sarah, we actually have an announcement today. Yes. We have reached a million downloads. Yay! So exciting. And so we're going to have a meetup in LA on January 21st to celebrate. That's right. We're going to meet up on Sunday, January 21st from 4.30 to 6.30 p.m., at Idle Hour, which is a really cool bar near my house, <laughs> at 4824 Vineland Avenue in North Hollywood. So we hope everyone can make it. Email us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com to let us know if you're coming. Hi, and welcome to Happier in Hollywood, the podcast about how to be happier, healthier, saner, more creative, more successful, and more productive in a backbiting, superficial, chaotic, unpredictable, fundamentally insane world. I'm Liz Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in Los Angeles, and with me is my high school friend and writing partner of now 18 years, Yikes. Sarah. That's me, Sarah Fain, also a TV writer and producer. Today's episode is all about you. It's Listener Day. We've been getting so many great comments and questions from all of you, so we decided to dedicate a whole episode to answer all of your buzzing thoughts. Yes, and we thought we would start with a question for Liz from Megan. She is getting married next month, and she writes... I'm dealing with the whole last name conundrum. I work in Hollywood and have credits on shows in the support staff category, assistant, writer's PA, post coordinator, etc., but I'm working to become a writer. I could use my last name for all things Hollywood like you've done. Is it a total pain to have two last names or is it worth it? Uh, it is not a pain to have two last names. It's perfectly fine to have two last names. Uh, because, yeah, Megan's right. I use Elizabeth Craft professionally. And then in my personal life, my last name is Fierro, um, which is my husband's last name. And I like it. I like having his last name. I like when we go to hotels that we're all Fierros. I like at school that I'm, you know, Liz Fierro. But one, I'd already started our career when I met Adam, right. so I didn't want to switch. Like, really, like Megan's saying, once you start having credits under one name, having a new name might feel sort of like starting over. Yeah. Plus, you know, it's my family name, so I like seeing it on TV. Yeah, and weirdly, you're Elizabeth Craft officially, professionally, but you go by Liz. Because people call me Liz. Except but, for your family. Which right. goes to another question. We had a question from Denise. Why do you go by Liz on Happier in Hollywood and Elizabeth on Happier? Yes, and that is because my family calls me Elizabeth. Yes. Um, and I use the name Elizabeth on my credit because my mom never liked the name Liz. So I didn't want her to see Liz on TV. I wanted her to see Elizabeth. And then on the podcast I do with Gretchen, um, which is called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, it would be odd to have my sister calling me Liz because she never once has called me Liz my whole life. <laughs> right. So it would just seem weird. As well, it'd be weird if you were calling me Elizabeth. It would be so weird. you never called me <laughs> Elizabeth. So, you know, names, you know, they're free-floating. What yeah. can I say? <laughs> All right. And now we have a podcast recommendation from our listener, Josh. He emailed us about a podcast called Art Curious, which is produced and hosted by his wife, Jennifer DeSalle. I'm going to say, I hope I said that right. Um, she's a contemporary art curator and a historian who often focuses on a feminist perspective. And the show is about the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. It's a fun storytelling style show about interesting little corners of art history that can be fun, whether or not you know or care anything about art. 
And you always wanted to know more about art. You felt like you didn't get a lot of that education. Exactly. I always wished I'd taken an art history class in college, and I never did. But this podcast is so great for me because it's really entertaining. I learned things that I had no idea about before. Um, Like, did you know the Mona Lisa was stolen? Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I did not know that. Yes, or I if I knew that. it, I forgot. <laughs> I learned that in the first episode of Art Curious, and season two is all about the World War II era, so I'm totally hooked. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you guys listen to Art Curious, let us know what you think. I'll check it out too. Okay. Now, Sarah, our next question comes from Jessica, and we've heard this from a few people. She says, I'm a pediatrician in Chicago with both hospital-based and clinic-based experience. I'm very intrigued about the concept of TV shows employing medical professionals to review material and give input slash offer expertise for realistic medical content slash dialogue. Do you have any advice for how to find an opportunity like this? Yes. Have a friend who is the creator of a legal or medical show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you're right that many shows use this kind of person to help them, but it tends to be a personal connection. Yeah, like on For the People, Paul William Davies, who created that show, had a very good friend who was a— She's a— Federal public defender. Yes. And so she became the consultant on the show. And it is a paid position. It doesn't pay a ton. No. And it's um, it's something you more do for the love of it, probably. Yeah. And, you know, I will say maybe if you wrote into shows, especially a smaller show, um, an offer just like, hey, for free. Like if you offered, hey, someone can call me if you want. Or, you know, what you could do is let the WGA know. Yeah that you're someone who is willing to offer free advice. If you start offering free advice, it might lead to getting paid. Right. You could build relationships. Yeah. It's all about relationships. Everything in Hollywood is. um, And this is no exception. Yeah. Just don't expect that to be your primary source of income. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So now we have a question that came in from our listener, Hannah. She says, I moved to the L.A. area about three months ago and was wondering if you all had any tips for making friends in L.A. LA slash Hollywood. I made most of my friends through improv back home, but it feels so much more cutthroat here, and it's been difficult trying to find people, even going to meetup groups. Any tips? Ooh, that is a great question. Yes. LA can be a very lonely place. It can. And, you know, we met each other before Los Angeles, but meeting people in LA, it's really difficult. Making new friends as an adult in any new city is difficult. Yeah. Now, Sarah, I will say it's been a long time since you and I have been friendless in Los Angeles. Um, But Mary, our assistant, is uh, much younger than we are. And this is a newer experience from her. So let's have her help us answer this question. Yes. Good idea. Hey, Mary, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So you're closer to the friend-making stage of life than we are. Of course, we always want to make new friends, but, you know, we're starting a place of having them already. Um, Do you have tips for our listeners about how to do that? Yeah. You know, when I first moved to L.A., it was definitely difficult for me to find friends that I really clicked with, even after Santa Barbara, because those friends had all gone to other cities Santa Barbara is where you went to college. Yep. Santa Barbara is where I went to college. And so after that, you know, they all kind of dispersed to different cities. So I was in L.A. and I was kind of by myself. And I kind of get her point of view with the improv groups being very uh, cutthroat Mm. and just looking for their career. But I think 
don't uh, underestimate the value of an acquaintance because oh. if you meet one acquaintance and get invited to a group event, you'll definitely find people that you click with through that acquaintance. And I also find that it's very fun to have friends that don't work in the industry you work in. Oh, that's good advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if you do work in entertainment or if you do work in a different industry, you know, maybe try to find friends that work in some, you know, I have friends who one's an accountant and one mm -hmm. is working on his PhD. And so it's it's interesting to get all those people together and have conversations about things I don't know about. Do you belong to any groups where you meet people and make new friends? I do. This does pertain to entertainment, but I, I'm part of a writer's group. And the best thing about it is we're close and we're supportive of each other. And we do things besides writing. You know, we do focus on writing when we're in writer's groups. But afterwards, you know, We've done an escape room together, you know. <laughs> we're planning a trip to Big Bear, you know. We don't just work when we're together. Oh, that's great. Sarah and I are big advocates of writers groups, yeah. especially for people just moving to L.A. Mm -hmm. It sort of focuses you and does give you that community feeling. Mm -hmm. Okay, Hannah, hope Mary's advice helps you keep us posted um, on whether or not you've developed a friend group. We're, we're pulling for you. Yes, and thank you, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. All right, Liz, we're back. Um, and on a personal note, I want to thank our listener, Hannah. This another is another Hannah. Hannah <laughs> for her email in response to episode 27 when I discussed getting a grief book for Violet. Um, Hannah is a grief counselor at a hospice, and she wrote, Sarah, it sounds like you did a great job of starting the conversation with Violet about death and dying. It is definitely not too soon to start having that conversation. In our culture, we tend to shy away from those topics because it can be painful to talk or think about. All of us experience loss or grief at some point in time, and we don't know when that time will be for us or our kids. As tough as it may be, it is important to have those conversations with our kids in an age-appropriate way. It's normal when introduced to the concept of death for kids to be worried about people they love dying. It can be really hard to know what to say, but it is important to be honest with kids. It can be helpful to say something like, I plan to live a really long time, but if anything does happen to me, I have a plan for fill in the blank, to take care of you. Death is a scary topic, but also an essential part of life. Let them know their feelings are valid. It's a lot easier for kids to learn a little bit in an age-appropriate way over time than to have to learn it suddenly due to an unexpected loss. It sounds like you did a great job introducing a tough topic. If you ever need more info on how to talk to kids about death and dying, you can reach out to your local nonprofit hospice. Most have great resources. That's good to know. It is. So for anyone out there um, who may need that support, that's great information. And thank you, Hannah. That really did make me feel better. So your bomb was actually a hit. It was a stealth hit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Our next question comes from Deborah. She's got an interesting question. Uh -huh. She says, I'm reading about how the showrunners of House of Cards are scrambling in light of Kevin Spacey getting fired. Have you two ever had a similar experience? And just how awful must this be for them? And, of course, Deborah's referring to the fact that Kevin Spacey was fired from um, the Netflix show House of Cards after um, a lot of allegations um, came out against him about sexual assault. All I can say is, thank goodness we've never had something like that happen to us in the middle of a season. 
And yes, it is probably awful for them. Yeah. I mean, whatever work they had done is just scrapped. And that could have been six months of work. I mean, Mm -hmm. they probably had several scripts written. I mean, you know, if not the whole season. I don't know where they were in their season. And they just have to completely start over. Maybe there are some things they're going to be able to use. But without the main character, who was also the puppet master of the show. Yeah. I can't even imagine. It's like reimagining the whole show. Now, luckily, they have Robin Wright, who is phenomenal. And frankly, I'm very excited to see Robin Wright in the lead. Well, that's the thing. I'd sort of dropped out of House of Cards. And now I will be dropping back in for sure. As will I. So good luck, House of Cards writers. We're very excited for that product. And our thoughts are with you. Yes. Okay, so we're moving on to a question from Kristen, who wrote, I love everything about your podcast. Thanks. Um, My question is primarily for Sarah, although I would welcome wisdom from both of you. Sarah, I am inspired by your choices to own your health and face your family history of Alzheimer's. I am traveling a similar journey. My mother passed away from breast cancer in 2015, and I chose to have a preventive mastectomy that same year. My question is, how do you balance facing your risk and not obsessing over it? Well, I mean, Sarah, this is a great question for you. Yeah, I love this question. Um, Because, yeah, preventing Alzheimer's is incredibly important to you. It is. Um, So, well, first of all, kudos to Kristen for taking charge of your health in such a proactive way. I guess my – well, what's interesting is when your question came in – Liz said, well, isn't it all about fear? Right. Because to me, I would say one of the sort of most forward things about you is a fear of getting Alzheimer's because we talk about it constantly. Yes. And what's what was interesting to me about that is that I 100% don't find that to be the case. I mean, I'm afraid of getting Alzheimer's. I'm not an idiot. Um, but... Fear is paralyzing. Mm. Hope is motivating. Mm. Um, And I think, like, the times in my life when I have sort of been paralyzed and unproactive were the times when I was living in a place of fear. Mm. And now when I'm um, much more sort of active and curious and engaged in— Embracing knowledge. Yes, embracing knowledge and my own health and well-being, that to me feels like coming from a place of hope— and optimism and, like, excitement about the things that I can do and the things that I can control. So you don't feel like, when she says obsessing, you don't feel like it's taking over your life? and uh, or I mean, I feel like I don't think of it as taking over my life in a negative way. I think of it as contributing to my life and certainly mm-hmm. changing my life. Yes, in a positive in way. In a positive way, yeah. So... To me, it's, you know, a lot of it is really living in an atmosphere of growth. Mm-hmm. You know, Gretchen's whole, I talk about Gretchen a lot because yeah. I think she's awesome. Um, My sister and the co-host of Happier yes, with Gretchen Rubin. Exactly. And I think living in an atmosphere of growth is, at its essence, a positive thing. So for me, it doesn't come from a place of fear. It comes from a place of feeling like I can be in charge of my own destiny. And, I mean, Kristen's, as you said, has already taken great steps. Yeah. So, I mean, she's done so much already to, you know, hopefully not get breast cancer herself that doing the other things are just add-ons. Yeah. You know, she's just taking further steps. But agree, you can't just live 
I mean, I think, as you said, if you live in a place of fear, I mean, why even live? Right. You know, it's yeah. it's not fun. I mean, I'm a type 1 diabetic. I could spend a lot of time, you know, researching stories right. about people getting their legs cut off yeah. and things like that. I choose not to. I choose to think about the fact that my doctor has many patients who've had diabetes more than 30 years and never been hospitalized for it. Right. So... Um, at the same time, I could use more of what you do, more reading, more knowledge. I think I like just like to manage it and shut out a lot of it because uh-huh. I feel like it just would get me so down. But I right. should probably do what you do and embrace. Or maybe it's just the way I handle it. It may just be the way you handle it. But I do think that like the more I investigate and the more I learn, the easier it is for me to handle the information that I have. Mm. You know, I do feel like um, when I have been more closed off to information out of out of fear, mm-hmm. um, it has been worse for me. And now that I'm much more curious and exploring sort of whatever there is to know, I feel better. So, so I don't know. To each her own. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to a less serious topic, Um, another person from our Facebook group, Cass, wrote, I've always wondered what happens to all the sets between TV seasons. There must be a huge storage area for all the bits and pieces. How long does it take them to rebuild, paint, decorate, etc.? I'm watching reruns of Cougar Town. Love, Jules's mm-hmm. house. <laughs> Cougar Town, of course, is a sitcom starring Courtney Cox, um, which is no longer making new episodes, but is still on the air. So, Sarah, yes, sets are, you know, the place where things are shot. I mean, some things are shot on location, especially in drama. But big portions of TV shows are are shot on sets in warehouses. Yeah, on sound stages. On sound stages, yeah. And so what happens to them when they're not being used? If you have a successful show that's definitely coming back the next season, usually they just kind of sit there on the soundstage and, and wait for the actors and the crew to come <laughs> back. But if a show is done or if they don't know if a show is coming back and think it's probably not um, they yeah they pack them up very tightly they kind of condense them into these tight packages giant packages of set (laughs) and label them um, with what show they are and sometimes they just sit outside I remember the dollhouse sets sitting outside the stages Mm. for a while between seasons, I don't know why. It probably depends on if they need the stage space or not. If yeah. there's something that's going to come in and rent that space and give the studio money, then yeah. they'll strike the sets, put them aside. But if there isn't someone who's going to come in and rent the space, then that's just man hours you're paying for people to strike them and put them back together. Yeah. As for how long it takes to set them up, I mean, that really depends on if it's a new set. Like, say you're doing a pilot, and most pilots, especially dramas, are shot entirely on location. But if they're building sets for whatever reason, I mean, it takes a couple weeks. Yeah, it takes weeks of planning and then weeks to build them. But, I mean, it's faster than you would think. Yeah, it's a whole crew of people who all they do is do this. So they are experts and they're fast and they're efficient. And they're incredibly artistic. Yes. There is a real art to making totally fake things look real. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's not easy. (laughs) 
Sarah, this question made me think of um, when we really knew our show, Women's Murder Club, wasn't coming back uh-huh. was when our line producer, Ed, informed us that they had struck the set. Yeah, that was In a very final now. way. And that they weren't the storing it anywhere either. <laughs> they <laughs> it were went to the recycling place. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sad. All right, Sarah. Well, in episode 25, we talked to our friend Eileen about procrastination, which is the bane of many writers' existence (laughs) and many other people as well. And Laura sent us a great procrastination tip. She writes, I wanted to share something that has helped me hack procrastination in my work big time. I use an app called Pizzizz, which is spelled P-Z-I-Z-Z, which was originally created to help cure insomnia. Paziz recently added a focus module, which allows you to set a timer and it plays focus background music. It's incredible. This allows me to use the Pomodoro technique, which is something Eileen talked about, and everyone should go back and listen to it because it's a great idea, and set 20 to 25-minute time chunks. Yeah, we got great feedback from our listeners on that episode. A lot of people struggle with procrastination, and a lot of people discovered the Pomodoro method thanks to Eileen. So yes, check it's out being Pizzizz. embraced <laughs> all over the country and the world. Coming up, we have a Hollywood hack from a listener that's all about living in the moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. And now it's time for this week's Hollywood hack, which comes from our listener Matt. Yes, in episode 27, the iPhone's portrait mode was our Hollywood hack. Well, Matt has turned portrait mode into a metaphor. A metaphor? Yes, and it's brilliant. Okay, so Matt says, Portrait mode has been the perfect metaphor to help me bring my focused attention back to what matters, whether it's my husband, a friend, or a student. When I notice my mind scanning, I think, portrait mode, and imagine the background setting going fuzzy as I focus in on the person or task before me. It has been a happiness booster for sure and is also helping my effectiveness at work. Yeah, and for anyone who doesn't remember, portrait mode is a setting that allows you to take pictures using a shallow depth of field. So one thing in the picture is crystal clear. And it looks very professional. It does. So this, to me, Sarah, was like, aha moment. I mean, oh my God, I can... Already imagine us for years to come when we're having some crazy all over the place discussion about a script yeah. being like, OK, let's go into portrait mode. What's important right now? Yes, exactly. And I think also for parenting, you know, like those moments when you're at home and 50,000 things are going on, but it really needs to be like a special moment between you and your child just to go portrait mode. Like, I want to be totally focused on Violet in this moment. You want to be totally focused on Jack in this moment. Yes. I mean, it's like, duh, what yeah. a great metaphor. Yeah. I've ne- and I've never heard anything like it before right. either. Yeah. Um, I think Matt is like poetic. Matt is our happier in Hollywood philosopher of the week. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Matt, for taking our fairly superficial, let's face it, Hollywood hack and making it profound. And that's it for this episode of Happier in Hollywood. Thank you so much for all the wonderful emails and for the comments and questions on our Facebook group. We love hearing from you, and we also love witnessing how much you guys offer to each other. If you have more questions or comments, email us at happierinhollywood at gmail.com. Or better yet, send us a voice memo. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast, give us a review at Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us. 
Thanks to our assistant, Mary, for joining us today. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Lai. Also, thanks to Kristen Meinzer and Andy Bowers of Panoply. Thank you to Gretchen Rubin. Happier in Hollywood is part of the Onward Project. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at Liz Craft and Sarah is at S. Fame. And don't forget our Facebook group. Search for Happier in Hollywood on Facebook to join in on the conversation. You can find us on Twitter, too. I'm at Elizabeth Craft and Sarah is at Sarah M. Fain. Until next week, I'm Sarah Fain. And I'm Liz Craft. Thanks for joining us. It's a fun job. And we enjoy it. You know what I forgot to say, Liz, in the um, the question about the whole fun Alzheimer's <laughs> situation, um, is everything that I do in my present life to make my future life better makes my present life better, too. Ah, that's true. You know, I'm healthier, I'm happier, I'm stronger. I'm, Your skin you know, looks great. My skin, man, right? So much better. Yeah.